It's one thing to know how to cook a perfect steak, roast a Thanksgiving turkey, or boil pasta to an exact al dente. But if you're really cooking to impress, your dish is going to need a great sauce. From traditional French bechamels and hollandaises to curries and stir fries to good old tomato sauce, the possibilities are endless as long as you've got a good recipe. We're talking sauces on today's Please Explain with James Peterson, chef, restaurateur, and teacher whose multiple James Beard Award-winning cookbooks include Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making, currently in its third edition. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and I'm very pleased to welcome James Peterson back to our show today. It's a pleasure Thank to see you. Thank you for having me. And we always invite our audience to join in these conversations. Our number here is 212-433-9692. That's 212-433-9692. WNYC, or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org, on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. What makes a, a sauce a sauce? Does some sort of chemical process have to happen? No, not necessarily. It's interesting because I've, I go out to restaurants, not too often, but I've noticed lately when I go out to sort of the latest, hippest restaurants, they don't make sauces in the same way. They treat sauces as condiments. In other words, there'll be a, there'll be a flavor that's, uh, that isn't related to the dish at hand, whereas French cooking most of the time is designed to emulate or expand or vary the flavor at hand. And it also often involves, or does it always involve a roux? Oh, no, not at all. In fact, uh, when I went to Paris when I was learning how to cook in the 70s, they, it was forbidden to use flour in the sauces. It became uh, one of those things you just didn't use, you didn't do, because they, they switched from, say, for example, a bechamel. They would take cream and just reduce it down until it's thick. Well, it's delicious, but it'll kill you, you know. <laughs> it's wonderful, but it's very, very rich. In uh, in curries, um, uh, I'm assuming that the spices become a substitute for things like the flour, or uh, the, I guess they use coconut uh, milk in some cases to instead of the cream. Yes, that's happened, and, and in fact, I'm working on a new edition in which I'm going to integrate some of these new things, quote unquote, new ingredients. So you're going to do a fourth edition, fourth but it's edition. going to be uh, changed a lot. Well, change, not really change. New material will be added. But we're going to, of course, still have the French mother sauces. Oh, absolutely. Uh, initially, just four of them. Are they? St- how many are there now? I don't even remember. <laughs> Let's see. There's, uh, there's bechamel. There's bilute, which is the same as bechamel, except you use stock instead of milk. There's the whole Béarnaise Hollandaise family. Espanol. Uh, there's Espanol. Uh-huh. There's, uh, what was the last one? Mayonnaise. Do we know who invented these things? Uh, how many of them came from Italy with Catherine de' Medici? Well, that's the old tale. Everyone says it came from, from Italy. I tend to doubt it because I've done research on very, with very old texts, 17th century, 18th century texts, and all these things that we think have been standards for so many years are constant flux. A Bernays 200 years ago is not what we think of today. A completely different thing. Did uh, Chef Auguste Escoffier kind of uh, uh, give us a standard that we bounce off of? Yes, he did. He took it, he took it all and standardized it. 
there was some and his his principle was that you could go to any hotel grand hotel in the world order a sommelier and it would be exactly the same it's, and it's kind of the opposite of the way we think now, where, where everything's regional and we want things to reflect where we are and be different. But in those days, he wanted to standardize. You're right, yes. A lot of the sauces only have a few basic ingredients. Is the difference made in the seasoning? Largely, yes. And also in the juices that a particular food will release. Ideally, a sauce is based on that. Like if you make a roast and you've got drippings and you make a jus, which is what I think it was a gravy without thickener, or a gravy. And it's delicious and wonderful, and it's derived from the thing itself. And that's what I call integral sauces. But they're usually reduced, aren't they? Not necessarily. It depends. Everything depends. <laughs> there are variables on everything. If I have a little bit of juices in the bottom of a roasting pan, I'll take it, put it on the stove, and wait until they all caramelize. Juices actually caramelize in the bottom of the pan. And what that allows me to do is to pour off the fat because the fat separates. So I caramelize the juices, pour off the fat, and then deglaze the pan. That's my approach. Can you make a sauce from a roast without the juices? That's tricky, and it's very interesting that you brought that up because when I roast something... Um, it often isn't cooked enough, quote-unquote, cooked enough. If you roast, make a rib roast rare, it's not going to release much in the way of juices. So what I do is take trimmings, pieces of meat and bone, whatever I have around, a little carrot and onion or whatever, and I spread that stuff on the bottom of the roasting pan. It also has the advantage of keeping the roast from sticking to the pan. And what, what happens is those things release the juices, does it matter what kind of pan you use? Heavy. It should be heavy bottoms. And then there are saucepans. That's a totally different thing. Saucepan. Ideally, things should be heavy so they conduct heat evenly. Like if I leave one of my copper pots on the stove with, some, with something sweating or brazing in it, I know what the tolerance is for me, for me playing around without looking at it because it's a heavy copper thing. Whereas the thin aluminum thing, I'd be hanging over it, stirring constantly. Well, more and more people are getting away from the non-sticks. Yes. Did you hear that bird thing? What bird thing? Well, the bird, I, I read this somewhere, that if you have a bird in your house and you heat a non-stick pan hot without anything in it, it will kill the bird. Nora Ephron once wrote a joke recipe in which he said, uh, put the Teflon pan onto the burner uh, heat it up until the carcinogenic fumes <laughs> rise, <laughs> and then add really <laughs> My guest is James Peterson. Uh, he, we're talking about sauces on today's Please Explain and inviting your calls at 212-433-9692 if you have questions about sauces and not just the French sauces. In fact, we're just about to talk about tomato sauces, for example, and then there are Asian sauces. There are sauces in every, pretty much every cuisine. Uh, 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And by right, does pretty much every cuisine around the world have some kind of sauce? It's funny. I never thought of that. Because I've, I've thought about dumplings. It seems like that's one of, of the strategies that uh, occurred to people pretty much everywhere. It's universal, isn't it? 
a Popo's. It's funny. I was just talking about Popo's the other day. I know this isn't about sauces. But to make Popo's, you need a very heavy mold because you want the heat to deliver straight away. Otherwise, it won't work. It's the same, it's the same dough batter, basically. If you want to make a butter-based sauce, how do you decide what kind? Should you use brown butter versus clarified, just plain butter? It depends. If you're whisking, if you're thickening a sauce with butter, you don't want to use clarified butter because that's essentially oil, and that'll just float to the top. You want to use whole butter, preferably cold, and you whisk it in there, constantly moving the pan so that it integrates. Now, in terms of what butter I use... It sounds, sounds terribly snobbish, but I use French butter. And the funny thing is... It has more butter fat? It has more butter fat. It's made from cultured butter, and it has an entirely different taste. And it took me years to realize why my sauces weren't tasting like I remember them in France. It was the butter. What about tomato sauces, the, the basis of so much Southern Italian cooking? Do we know why some people call pasta sauces gravy? I have no idea. Some people prefer their tomato sauces sweet and use things like sugar and sweet onions. Others prefer their red sauces to be more savory, rely on herbs, salt, garlic. Uh, do you have any fav- uh, favorites, any preferences? Well, I have a trick with not just tomato sauce but other sauces in general. If you pump up the sweet aspect and you balance it with something sour, in other words, I'll take a little sugar and ideally caramelize it a little bit. And then while it's hot, I'll add vinegar to it. And that's what's called a gastrique. And it's, a, it's this mixture of caramel and vinegar. So it's sweet and sour. And I add that to tomato sauce, and it magnifies the flavor without it tasting sweet because the vinegar balances it. When I was uh, a kid, I was taught by Italian friends to make a tomato sauce, and the ingredients call for a can of tomato puree, a can of tomato paste, some water, and spices. You cooked it a long time on very low heat. And now I see all these recipes that call for quick sauces using fresh tomatoes, uh, and they, or they specify using crushed San Marzano's. So what's led to all this confusion? Well, because there's so many approaches to tomatoes. Um, the long-cooked style tomatoes, that's what I remember growing up. And if you have a classic Bolognese in Italy, that's how they make it. And to this day. To this day. And it's wonderful they use veal or beef or some kind of meat or pork as the base. And, and then they caramelize the tomato and such. But if you're making a fresh tomato sauce, what I do is take the tomatoes, squeeze out, peel them, squeeze out the seeds and the liquid inside, and chop them up. And that's what we call concasse, a raw concasse. But if I want to cook that, I put it in the pan just for a minute until it releases its liquid. Then I throw, uh, put it through a strainer, not put it through, but just pour it, and then I reduce the liquid it releases rather than the whole thing. And that way the tomato doesn't, the pulp doesn't just get cooked to death. And you can cook that pretty quickly. Oh, it takes no time at all. Now, some people just want to gussy up a jarred tomato sauce. Should they bother? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I believe in jars and cans when necessary. We, ha- we have to face modern times. 
so if, if you want, you're making a delicate stuffed pasta dish like a, a ravioli, and you don't want to drown it in tomato sauce. Um, what's a good substitute? Should you use a butter sauce? Oh, one of my favorites, Leonard. I have a good trick for pasta. is is a wild is a porcini sauce. Now people think, oh, porcini are so expensive, they're so exotic. Well, if you buy a little bag of dried porcinis for ten and twelve dollars, they will last you. You can make. 40 of these recipes because you only need one little slice. It's, they're so powerful. And what I do is just simmer them in a little cream, just very gently. And when it, that cream re- reaches the right consistency, I toss it with the pasta. Oh, it's fantastic. So you're using cream. It's the kind of thing that you do in a vodka sauce. Yes, yes, I guess. I, I've never been big on vodka sauce because vodka doesn't have any taste, and I never could figure it out. I never end this to them either. Uh, our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org. Dan from Hastings, you're on the air. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yes, we hear you fine. Great. Great. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, uh, I'm a big kale fan, um, and I was introduced to kale uh, at a uh, community group, and the cook always did this great thing where she combined three-buck chuck from Trader Joe's um, with uh, garlic, like just finely uh, grated garlic. Um, and I've been going with that ever since. I really haven't had that. I mean, obviously olive oil, but I just saute it in a pan and just get it almost near burnt. I really love it. And I'm looking for recommendations as to how to vary up uh, the kale because I try things like, you know, every now and then I've tried things like putting it in with, you know, a huge cook, so I put it in with, common tomato sauces you might buy off the shelf or, um, you know, other Asian sauces that I can't seem to find much, but the, the red wine and, and garlic seems just subtle enough to really combine well with the kale's flavor. What else would you recommend? Well, one of my favorite ways to use kale is in a soup, and again, with garlic. I think it, it, it cries out for garlic. And one of my tricks for integrating garlic into a soup is to make aioli and then whisk the hot broth into the aioli, and you get this creamy sauce, but instead of cream in there, it's olive oil it's, and uh, a tiny bit of egg that's thickening it. Now, he mentioned using a very inexpensive wine, and there's been a debate in the food world over whether you can should cook with an inexpensive wine or whether you have to use the same wine that you're serving at the table. Oh, I, I in fact, tell people not to use the wine you're, you're drinking at the table because at least you have my taste. The wine at the table is going to have a relatively large amount of acidity in it. For cooking, I like full-body, what we would call flabby, fat wines with low acidity because I don't want that harshness to show up in the sauce. So I'll buy like Zinfandel from California and also something I can afford. It doesn't have to be something expensive or fancy. And when you're cooking with wine, uh, once you've cooked out the alcohol, haven't you really taken all of the things that made that fancy wine special out of it anyway? No, you haven't. The interesting thing about wine is people think, oh, well, I can cook the wine down and use it as a sauce. Well, the thing is, when you do that, is the wine gets very tannic and very harsh and very acidic. So what I do, and this is a good good trick, is the moret sauce, where you take a little bit of prosciutto, I use the ends, chop them up a little bit, sweat them with onions and the whole thing, carrots and all that, put wine in there and a bouquet garni and simmer that. 
what happens is the prosciutto, being protein, clarifies out the tannins. So it's soft. The, the, the sauce doesn't come off really acidic. And then if you swirl in a little butter at the end, that will soften it further. Let's take another call. Jim from Long Island, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. How do you handle having fresh beef stock or chicken stock on hand all the time versus buying a store-bought stock in a box or even using a bullion, God forbid? Well, there's no replacement for your own, your own stock. I hate to say it. I wish there were. I've tried a number of these products that have come out over the years, and they start out very good, and they seem to deteriorate as time goes on, though they've cheapened them or something. So what I do is make stock oh, once a year, really. I'll make the stock, a big old pot. I went down to the Bowery and bought a 25, I don't know, quarter gallon or something. It's a huge pot. And I make a huge pot of bouillon like that. But I simmer it way, way down. So it's the gloss. It's a glaze. It's like rubber when it's cold or when it's room temperature. It's like hard rubber. It feels like you can make a comb out of it. And um, that won't ferment. That won't turn on you. You could even leave that out. I put it in the freezer just in case. But I hate to admit it, but I have stuff like that that I've had in there for years. The problem with putting it in the freezer is if you only want to take a portion of it out uh, and you, you, you may have to microwave the whole thing. So you're going to defrost everything. Well, actually not because there's so much gelatin in there that you can kind of cut into it like ice cream. So, so it's not too bad. And if it's a problem, just leave it in the fridge because that's fine too. Speaking with James Peterson, chef, restaurateur, teacher, multiple James Beard Award winner, we're talking about sauces. Uh, his book, Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making, is uh, one of the classics of, of uh, cookbook literature. It's now in its third edition, soon to be in a fourth edition. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And we will continue our conversation. Take your calls at 212-433-9692. Also, you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we are back with James Peterson. We're talking about sauces today on Please Explain with the author of Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And taking your calls at 212-433-9692, or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And people have been writing in. Bill from New Rochelle wants to hear more about vinegar-based sauces like the ones in the Philippines. Well, the Philippines, I don't know much about the Philippines, but vinegar I'm, I'm a fan of. I use it in practically everything, even brown sauces, like a classic brown sauce for... I know I'm digressing from the question, but but a classic brown sauce, say for a steak, um, is going to taste better with a few drops of vinegar in it. It wakens it up. And we are having we have this challenge, as you just heard, uh, that Melissa Clark issued to our listeners about infused vinegars. Uh, so you could put a different flavored vinegar into something, and uh, it'll change the whole nature of the sauce. Absolutely. You have to be careful what you infuse because sometimes the vinegar distorts it. Depends on the herb or, or whatever it is you're using. 
Estelle writes, the first time I tried to make cheese sauce, I knew nothing about sauces. I added the flour, butter, milk, and cheese, stirred them all together, and heated them. The sauce didn't thicken, so I kept adding more cheese until I had something <laughs> like glue. Was there anything I could have done to have saved it? Mm, saving it. Well, the only thing I can think of was to make a roux. Instead of throwing everything in, what you should have done was take the flour and butter and cook that together and stir it so it's smooth. Because if you just throw the flour in, it's going to form lumps. So the cheese technique for thickening isn't the best. So what I would do in that situation is make a roux, a proper roux, whisk the glue thing in there and put something to lighten it, like some water or cream or something to thin it a bit. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure that would work, but that's what I would try. Do you like cheese sauces? Oh, I love them. Sure. I'm gratin. Like potatoes, mm. I love that uh, gratin dauphinois where you put the potatoes and, and layers of, of gruyere and cream. I love that stuff. Making me hungry. Bill from Putnam Valley, New York. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Leonard. How are you? Hi. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment about when you guys were talking about the vodka sauce. Uh, my dad uh, was a chef, and uh, I'm an anthropologist. And the, the author is right that the vodka sauce has no taste. But it's really a, a sort of a, a corruption, probably a New York corruption. In Italy, the sauce is a vodka sauce, which is V-A-C-C-A, which means cow. So it's really a cream sauce. It has nothing to do with uh, with the, the spirit vodka. So probably some, you know, New York corruption, uh, <laughs> you know, just read the term thinking it was vodka. I didn't, I didn't know the Italian word for cow. Had you heard that, Jim? Never. But I it makes sense. every day. It makes real sense. It makes sense. Vodka's vodka has nothing to do with Italy. The only thing I can think of, Leonard, is the possibility that vodka used to have taste when they distilled it with, from potatoes and stuff. So, but, but our guest uh, uh, listener sounds like he's on the right track. Edie from Midtown Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Thank you. I'm loving this show. Uh, the an- my answer to uh, having all that jellied stock frozen uh, is that you put it when it's still liquid into an ice cube tray, and then you've got all these nice cubes of this condensed sauce, and you can get a- Then you pop them into Ziploc bags, and you can get out what you need, which works very well. I have heard of that, and that's a great trick. The only thing is that I reduce my sauce so much. It's so intense that an ice cube size would be too much. Well, so you my can get thought, mini ice cube the little tray. mini, yeah, that's the secret. I just and that thought really that. works because mm-hmm. I know I used to cook it down until it was like cubes of rubber. Mm-hmm. But after the two years, I could find a little bit of mold on some of them. <laughs> but which I washed off because after all that work, you don't want to throw it away. <laughs> no. The other thing I like to suggest is that I I, I live in France in the south in, in the summertime, and I hear um, that southern accent. <laughs> yes, um, Southern American accent. Anyway, um, I use, for to soften a tomato sauce that's too acidic. I use a little honey. Hmm. Sounds good. Which works nicely. I, I love your ideas that you've been talking about. It's just great to hear you. Thank you so much, Edie. Thank- and uh, 
of talking about freezing. Uh, Peter from Westport wants to add something. Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you? Okay. Um, what I do uh, when I make my stock, I'll have a pot of chicken stock, and I'll put it in different size uh, uh, plastic Ziploc bags. So, for instance, if I want to save a whole gallon, I get the air out and you lay it flat and it freezes and it doesn't take up much space. Or smaller Ziploc bags for smaller quantities. But that would be for stock that you would use for soup or uh, anything else. But it seems to me like a good way to store it. Well, try it. I'm not as... I approach things more basically. I just pour it into one of those plastic Chinese takeout things and put it in the fridge. Um, But if you don't reduce your stock enough, like if you just have bouillon there, it can ferment. And it can, especially in the summer when the fridge isn't as cold. So if I have stock in there, what I do is bring it to the boil every few days, every four or five days. And that, that preserves it. What about uh, Asian dipping sauces? Can you recommend anything to use with something like spring rolls or dumplings? I Other- wish I knew more about Asian sauces. I hate to be so provincial, but uh, my background is French cooking. So the Asian sauces strike me, but the one thing that does strike me about Asian sauces is they're condiment-oriented. In other words, an Asian sauce doesn't so much amplify the flavor of what's being cooked. Like a Thai curry, for example, the sauce doesn't reflect the flavor of, say, the shrimp or the chicken or whatever it is. Whereas in French cooking, a stock or something would have been made so that the flavor is amplified. What about uh, barbecue sauces? I know they're not French, but um, for a lot of people, that means sticking a lot of ketchup into a pot with a few hot sauces. I like to I like Tabasco sauce. I like hot things. I like fresh sauces made with peppers that I've sweated and, and hot peppers in there. Ellen from Beachwood, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Go ahead. Um, I have a question about making um, a sauce that goes over spadini. I know it's made with capers and anchovies, and I don't know the rest of the ingredients. Does it have those flaky um, peppers in there? Um, I, I'm, I, I don't conf- think so. I'm confusing it with Putinesca. I mean, I guess you could put it over anything, but it really goes over, um, I've had it over Spadini. Mm-hmm. Well, what, the closest thing I can think of is the Putinesca sauce. Have you ever made one of those? What is it? I'm sorry? A Putinesca sauce. Oh, no, it's different than Putinesca. Oh, it is, it's huh? Sauce. I love Putinesca. I make that. This is more brown, almost like I would think a Marcella might be involved. Hmm. But it's a it's a very rich uh, anchovy look, as uh, seems to be, and a, a capers. And, and it's olive, interesting. We have another. Olive, what could be bad? We have another caller who wants a <laughs> recipe for a Marsala sauce. Marsala sauce. Well, Tyler from Hoboken, New Jersey. Hi, Tyler. Hey, how you guys doing today? Great. Um, the thing about Marsala, first off, is that it's almost impossible to find real Marsala these days. What you usually buy is caramelized, I don't know what they use. So I use Madeira instead, which isn't a whole lot better because most of the Madeira we get isn't of very high quality. But I use Madeira instead. And if I'm making a simple sauce, say I'm making a steak and I want Madeira sauce, I'd saute the steak, pour out the fat, 
deglaze the sauce with the Madeira, let it boil, let the alcohol boil off and such, add my little piece of, my little finger, thimble size of glaze, whisk that in there, and then finish it with a tablespoon or so of butter. And that's simple. Season it. If you like, you can have very finely chopped parsley, which gives it a freshness. Although that's not classic, but it's, but it's nice. There are also sauces for desserts. Oh, sure. And there's a wide range. What's a coulis, and how do you make one? Oh, a coulis is just a fancy word for something that's been strained. Tomato coulis is when you strain the tomatoes. Or, or a raspberry coulis, you strain the raspberries, and then you make the sorbet out of the, what goes through the strainer. And then chocolate sauces can be rather tricky. My trick with chocolate sauce, of course, it depends how thick you want it. And I've worked this worked on this because I like the chocolate sauce on vanilla ice cream, and I like to have it have the right consistency. But my basic fallback sauce is the ganache, equal parts semi-sweet chocolate, bitter sweet chocolate, and cream. You bring the cream to the simmer, take it off the heat. Put the chocolate in there, go do something else, come back in five minutes, stir it together, and it's done. The big problem is sometimes you, it hardens the minute you put it on something cold. Well, if you don't want that effect, just add some more cream to it. Thin it, even water. You can even use water if, you, if the cream makes you paranoid. Phil from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Thanks. Uh, I was wondering if you could recommend a uh, curry sauce. I mean... Just curry powder or better to mix your own spices? Well, it depends on the base you're using. Curry sauce can be many things. You can make a curried mayonnaise. You can make a curried hollandaise. You can make curried bechamel. It depends on the sauce. Now, to be honest with you, I usually use curry powder, a good brand of curry powder. Of course, I don't remember any good brands of curry powder. And I add a little saffron in there. And I'm... So it depends on your base. What is your base? Well, let's say you're using a stock as, as a base. Let's say you're making a chicken curry or a fish curry. All right. Well, I'd t- there are a couple of approaches, but I'd brown the chicken, cook the chicken, um, throw out the fat. And if I were being a more traditional, I'd add a little flour, sweat that, add liquid, then add the curry. Now, talking about traditional pestos, for example, the traditional pine nuts and basil, uh, now I see pestos using every kind of nut and every kind of uh, flowery thing, every kind of green thing. Um, should we all call them all pestos? I don't think so. It's like aioli. You see that everywhere. Aioli is garlic mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. It's not with broccoli, <laughs> whatever they do. So you, do you believe in the, the classic one? Is it, must it be pine nuts? No, I use walnuts. Pine nuts are so expensive, and I, they're hard to find, too. Somebody else? Uh, okay, I'm going to sneak one more call in here. Bob from Brooklyn. Hi, Bob. You have to make it very fast. Yes, hi. I saw Jacques Papin uh, flavoring vinegars rather than buying a few vinegars with jams, and then I started using all kinds of really nice quality jams and sauces. Do you do that, and, and, and what dishes do you use jams in? I use, not often, but I would use jams as a sweetener. And it was like I was talking earlier that if you take a sauce, virtually any sauce, and you amplify the sweet and the sour aspects of it, you'll bring the flavor out. So that's a good trick for, uh, 
for, for doing that. Now, he uses jam, so I would just use jam as the sweetener, and that gives you a little fruity aspect. Now, you said that you're working on a new edition of Sauces. We don't have a lot of time, but uh, what kinds of updates are you making? Photography, full color, can be full color, and uh, lots of these new sauces that I have to learn about. There's a lot I have to learn. Coconut milk, almond milk, all that stuff. And color photography has become such an important part of cookbooks. There was a time when you might get some drawings if you were lucky. But I think most of us appreciate it. It has added to the cost of the cookbooks. Oh, I think it's necessary in, in anything that teaches technique. James Peterson's book, Sauces, Classical and Contemporary Sauce Making, is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, the fourth edition will be coming out soon, but the third edition is pretty great. Thank you once again for being on our show. Leonard, thank you very much for having me.